You're listening to Drek FM. Taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks. This is our show devoted entirely to Star Trek books and comics. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me as always this week is Matthew Rushing. Matthew, how are you doing this week? Actually doing really well, Chris. Uh, Things are uh, great, Um, although it did change the weather again here in Texas. Uh, just a few days ago, it was in the 70s. Uh, today, it was cold, rainy, and in the 40s. So wow. uh, it was a little bit of a shock to the system standing at the train station this morning. Oh, I bet. You know, is uh, two days ago here, the forecast was sunny. And instead, it snowed all day. We got about three centimeters of snow, which is not much, but it's a lot for us uh, here in Tokyo most strangely about it is that it didn't snow all over Tokyo. It snowed only in the little area of my part of town. A very, very localized snow event, which was extremely bizarre. Um, so I don't know if you follow my Instagram, but I took my I Kirk did. Bear, my Spock Bear outside. I, oh, nice. I put them in the snow. I took a picture <laughs> and I said, Captain, it seems that JJ has sent us to Hoth. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, um, that I was just wondering if that had happened or I thought maybe for some reason you had upset a queue and they were making it snow on you for no good reason. So I had no idea what was going on. You got to be careful about those queue. You don't want to upset them. That's yeah, that's for sure. They're definitely not to be trifled with. Well, Matthew, let's go ahead and jump into what is normally our news segment, but we really don't have much news this week. I think the only actual bit of news that we want to tell everyone about is an update on the release of Hive number four, which we thought was supposed to be out this week, but it's not. It's not. That's right. I was very disappointed. Um, You know, I was really getting into this Atlantis storyline that we were getting. Um, I was... So excited to see what was going to happen. Who is going to be the new king of Atlantis? Uh, who is going to inherit the <laughs> trident? Oh, wait, that's the wrong story. That's sorry. That I'm thinking about Justice League. Uh, we're talking about Hive. Forget me. Um, yeah, I was really. Oh, well, there's a trident there, too. So anyway, that's why we got mixed. It's the trident. I know. It's all confusing. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's all confusing, but. But yeah, this is going to come out on the 27th, so we've got to wait one more week and then we'll find out just how it all wraps up and whether we're going to get the reset button that we've talked about quite often. And uh, I'm interested yeah, to see how Braga concludes the story. I do think it's going to be an uh, interesting story end, and so like you, I'm, I'm kind of chomping at the bit at this point. I mean, we've been waiting for a long time, and so hopefully crossing my fingers again because well yeah we thought it was going to be out before so let's let's yeah let's get it one other thing that i should mention before we jump into our conversation about comics here is that this past week i did pre-order the star trek visual dictionary that dk is coming out with 
It's coming out in the US on the 18th of March, uh, but I was able to order the UK edition from Amazon Japan, which was slightly cheaper, and it comes out on March 1st. And in addition to that, I did like a double pre-order, and I also pre-ordered the Okuda's book, the uh, Aboard the USS Enterprise D. So I've got to get to work on my little figures now so I can run them around in the pop-up. You have a lot of good things coming towards you. I mean, you're going to get these books, you're going to be making these figures. Um, hopefully you'll get your kids involved there. You know, you can they can help you make the little figures and, you know, you can paint them and oh, definitely. You know, do little scenes with them. So it can be just like in Spaceballs when, you know, they come in and he's like, what? No, you didn't see me. What do I, how many times have I told you to knock? You know, you, <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. I didn't see you playing with your dolls again. <laughs> That's right. That's why I keep the door to my studio closed most of the time because uh, yeah, I don't want people walking in on me when I'm playing with my little Star Trek figures. Yeah, it's it's probably a good idea. That's it's wise. Um, well, I'm excited about this the this dictionary. I think it's going to be fantastic. Uh, the TrekCollective.com has been posting these great pictures of um, the layouts of some of the pages whether you talked about on the ready room with greg the andorians um and i hope there's going to be a whole andorian fight scene page just so we can see what moves we need to be using um exactly how to diagrams it shows you the moves exactly that's yeah um and i did want to mention too that that same website has uh a enterprises virtual tour that's going to be coming out with um, that book on board the Enterprise that Michael Kuda is doing. It's a fantastic oh, yeah. it the, look. The DVD with it. Yes. Yeah, so, that's going to be cool. Um, yeah, these are great books. This is, again, something that we need to be supporting if we want more books like this. All right. Well, why don't we jump into what we're going to do today instead of, in lieu of news, because there's not that much news, uh, in the feature, we're going to be talking to David R. George III. And before that... We're going to look at ongoing number 18 and countdown to darkness number two. Now, those both dropped today as we record. Of course, we had a chance to read them last week before they uh, were released and to kind of form our impressions of what we thought about the stories. Matthew, let's just start with ongoing number 18, the backstory of Uhura. So uh, what, what did you think about these? Well, this Uhura story for me was really interesting. Um, You know, the McCoy storyline was very much why he did what he did in his life. You know, uh, a great kind of overview of what makes McCoy McCoy. Uh, I I thought it was interesting. You know, this comic gives us a, a kind of a snapshot of an event in Uhura's life. And we really don't know very much about Uhura at all. And so this is actually a huge revelation to see. But um, I was just, I feel a little bit cheated because I i don't know as much about Ahura as I really want to from this comic. It, it just, it leaves me wanting more so much because it's, it really is. It's a very small snapshot of her life. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That, that was kind of how I felt after the McCoy backstory as well. I, I wanted to know more. But I think we did get more in that story about the character than we did here with Uhura. The little bit of the story that we did get about her here, and I guess we should say spoiler alerts to everyone who's listening. If you haven't read these two comics, uh, go ahead and pause and grab them. They're actually quite short. They're 24 pages each. 
and read through them, come back here and listen to this. Or if you're listening to the enhanced version of this show, uh, just check the chapters and you can skip ahead to our interview with David and come back to these chapters after you get the comics. So, Matthew, the bit that we do learn about her here, I think it does do a good job of letting us know why Uhura in the ongoing comics up to this point and the Uhura that we see in the Into Darkness trailers has a much, I feel like, stronger personality, a much more take-care-of-herself attitude than we saw from Uhura in the Prime Universe. Not that the Uhura in the Prime Universe wasn't like that, but we didn't see it in the stories very much because she was always such a background character. Yeah, you can tell and, and see from this story that from the beginning, even as a child, Uhura is very strong-willed. Uh, she seems to know what she wants. She's seems to be very driven. Uh, she has an adventurous side to her. She kind of has a thirst for knowledge as well. So you see that in that part of the story. Um, in, in the beginning of the story, we get um, why she's with Spock. And apparently, um, Uhura likes to be the aggressor in a relationship. Uh, she likes to be the one in charge, uh, making sure she gets asked out or she asks out what she thinks is going to be the best suitable mate for her. Uh, so, so you're using the term aggressor in this situation? Well, I mean, you know, she uh, seems to have planned this for a while um, because, you know, she well, says yeah. you're no longer a part of my my training. Um, I, I, you're basically, you're not my professor anymore. You're just a guy on campus. Uh, so I can go out with you now without this looking like, you know, I'm looking for favoritism or, you know, I'm trying to sleep with the professor or anything like that. Um, so she seems to have premeditated plans for asking Spock out, which, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, she was planning to ask him out. And and she makes a point of finishing her exams, you know, turning in her thesis. It's been graded. And she says, look, you know, this... This isn't favoritism. I'm not trying to get with you because you're my teacher or anything like that. It's all done. Now, can I ask you out for dinner? And Spock is like fascinating. <laughs> but I, like, I wouldn't call her an aggressor. I mean, she's it's the 23rd century, Matthew. You know, it's well, okay no, I, if a I woman mean, wants you to know, ask if, a man out. Yeah, I mean, if I I would call Spock the aggressor if he had premeditated asking her out. You know, for quite a while, it seems like. Uhura knows what she wants, and she's gonna go out there and get it. There's nothing wrong with that at all. I don't. I don't mean any disrespect for her being the aggressor. <laughs> but beyond this uh, explanation, you know, of how she and Spock met and how they ended up together, um, I think the events surrounding her family, what happened on the ship, and you know, obviously that would be a very traumatic event for any child, and and she feels helpless and. I mean, I would be scared to death in that situation myself. My my parents are unconscious. My uncle's outside the ship. Looks like the ship's going to explode. And, you know, her uncle tells her, look, I'm, I'm just asking you to drag the people that you love five feet. Can't you do it? And, you know, she has to dig down inside and and, and find that strength. And I think that even though they didn't tell us much about her background, really, and this is just like one glimpse into what happened in the past, they picked a good moment. I mean, that would definitely be a life-changing experience. And and the fact that she was able to get through that, I think would give her that confidence and that strength 
to propel her on through her life and and be the character that we are seeing so far in the ongoing comics and in the little glimpses that we have of her in Into Darkness. Not so much in the 2009 movie, but but since then. Well, I know, you know, they don't do anything, I, I think, by mistake in the ongoing comics. So there's definitely a reason why they're telling us this story about Uhura, you know, a few months before Into Darkness comes out. Uh, I think we'll definitely understand this much better when we see that film. Uh, it'll make a lot more sense character-wise. Um, I think the thing that I was left kind of um, disappointed in, too, is that I don't really see exactly anything in here that tells me why Spock and Uhura stay together. You know, like, what is it that makes them compatible um, or any of those things. I, I, I don't really feel like I get that here. Um, it's just kind of glossed over. Um, they start dating and they're still dating. But I, yeah. I, I would love to see what is the inner workings of their relationship that actually make this um, something that has staying power, uh, especially since he's a Vulcan and she's a human. And that doesn't always tend to be the easiest relationships for Vulcans to have. Um, so I would really like, I and I hope that we will get to explore that more, especially after Into Darkness, which the solicitations for um, the comics in May have already come out. And we know that at least it looks like the entire crew will make it through the film. Unless, like we said on the Ready Room, it's a memorial cover. We're exactly. remembering the crew. That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> but... yeah. Everything's been detonated for all it stands for. So, yeah. But yeah, ongoing number 21 is going to be picking up right where the movie leaves off, they say. So that will continue it. Um, I mean, you have a good point here. It's, again, why these comics are 24 pages. They're not 32 pages. It feels like if if they would make them 32-page comics, then we could go a little bit more into that story. That's what I would personally prefer to see. But yeah, I agree. I was left feeling a little unfulfilled at the end of this comic. Uh, I appreciate what we got, but it felt a bit quick. And it, like like these things always do, and like the Bones one did too, kind of raises more questions for me than it yeah. answered, which I don't know if that was entirely the intention of them. But uh, it's definitely something worth reading if you want to know more about the back history of the characters. Yeah, I just felt like after the McCoy comic that I was more fulfilled with the storyline. Like I had a better understanding, yeah. like, you know, I always kind of knew why McCoy left, but this just kind of gave me even more information on that. You know, with Ahura, unfortunately we don't know a ton about her character, her past. And so any little bit, I'm just kind of left with, well, now I just want to know the rest of the story uh, because there yeah. is so much more with her to find out. I guess just, just knowing how she and Spock ended up dating is, is a question that a lot of fans wanted answered. And so, and so that's in there. That's true. Um, I will say from an artwork perspective, I think this one is very well done. Very uh, fantastic artwork here by Claudia Balboni. And of course we read it as PDF, but we've also read it now on the iPad. And I will say on the iPad, on the retina display, it's absolutely gorgeous. The, the inking, the coloring is fantastic. They really have done a good job with this. Um, in fact, there's that that uh, one panel there where 
uh, Spock says fascinating, and it looks you know spot on for Zachary Quinto. Spock, I mean, just the yeah. the lighting and everything capture him as a character there. So yes, very good job for the artists in this work. I really didn't. That's one of the things that was for me was a highlight here with some of the things I wasn't as exactly excited yeah. about. And the explosions and the panel explosions. I mean, they, they really feel, it feels like they're bright and they're coming out yes. at me from yes. the screen. It's, it's, it's really excellent illustration work. Okay. Well, I think the bigger one for us to talk to is countdown to darkness. Number two, we both were blown away by the twist ending at the end of countdown to darkness. Number one, and we, we've been patiently waiting a month to find out what was going to happen. And, of course, they did pick up right where they left off, as we figured they would, with Kirk standing there, along with Spock, uh, meeting Robert April for the first time. So what are your thoughts on Countdown to Darkness number two? Countdown to Darkness number two does a great job of continuing the story and giving me so much more to go on that all I'm wanting are issues three and issues four. Um, I think that, again, the writing here is fantastic. The artwork is superb. Everything about this comic, I feel like, is raising the bar for Star Trek comics. Um, Even with uh, the way that the comic really delves into the issue of the Prime Directive, too, Uh, very much getting back to the spirit of Star Trek, these deep philosophical discussions that Star Trek brings up. And this comic really harps on that issue. Um, And I think, obviously, it's going to be very important for what we see coming up in the film. And uh, I just was really glad to see that here um, because it makes me feel like I'm in one of those old TOS episodes where we're having these big discussions while a war is going on and I can very much see um, Kirk, you know, struggling through this and trying to figure this out. Yeah. We get in here. One of the first uh, big statements of the prime directive, I guess, at least in terms of the timeline, when uh, April tells them, say it with me, gentlemen, the prime directive, thou shalt not interfere in the affairs of, nor make your existence known to any civilization that has not evolved to the point of interstellar travel of its own accord. I paraphrase, of course. And then they get into, like you said, the prime directive here uh, quite a lot. And Spock says, Captain April, you committed the most egregious possible violation of the prime directive. And I've been speculating that that scene in the Into Darkness trailer where Pike is talking to Kirk is probably related, I think, in the story to Kirk's involvement here in violation of the Prime Directive as well. Uh, I think this, what we're seeing here, is the event that they're talking about. Did you get the same impression, or do you think it's something else that's still to come? Well, it it could definitely be this, and I could, if it is, I can make sense of that. Um, I think the only issue for that for the film is that not everybody will have read this comic and so have any idea what they're talking about if they're not talking about something you see on screen. Um, So I do maybe have a feeling that uh, the nine-minute trailer that we got a while Mm -hmm. back is actually going to be what they're talking about, that uh, Kirk is going to somehow break the Prime Directive in that situation. 
um, and okay. put a lot of people well, this, at risk. Now, the nine-minute trailer you're talking about is not actually a trailer, right? It's the first nine minutes of the movie exactly. that was shown yes. before The um, Hobbit. Is that right? See, I haven't yes. been able to see that here yeah. in Japan personally. but Because they are on a world that is in the kind of the Iron Age and okay. that you know they shouldn't reveal themselves to it all. So I'm I'm thinking that somehow that might play in, um, and maybe this situation here with April is actually going to affect the way Kirk looks at the Prime Directive because here Kirk is a staunch supporter. I mean he's he's drunk the Kool Aid. He's Prime Directive all the way. Um, I have a feeling that this comic is going to kind of skew his view on the Prime Directive more to the version that we see in TOS where he follows it, but he's also willing to kind of throw it out the airlock when he needs to. Okay, so you think that this is not the event, but it's setting up how Kirk will react to the next situation, which is then what gets him in trouble. I think so, but I mean, again, you know, total speculation here, so. Sure, well, it's all speculation. At this point, we don't know what is going on other than... Uh, one thing that caught my eye here, though, you know, we've been trying to figure out, is Robert April in the movie? Uh, and, and we're both, I think, certain that he's not the villain in the movie. But we know that Harrison, we don't know if Harrison is actually kind or if he's an augment or what he is. We don't know for sure. But on this planet here where you have uh, the same species, but of course they're different colors and they're fighting a war. But one of them is dominant over the other one. But April tells them that the rulers of the planet, although they are the same species as the people that he's supporting, that they have 10 times the aggression and 10 times the artillery. So the 10 times the aggression part, you know, it makes me wonder, I mean, because they're the same species, why are they so much more aggressive than the others? So then I keep still coming back to the idea of, you know, is there a eugenics angle? to Harrison and what's going on. You know, the Klingons are going to be in the movie. If they happen to pick up any of Enterprise's history, there is the whole augment angle that played into the Klingons mm. as well, you know, from a technological standpoint. Yeah, so, very true. That, that just caught my eye. Yeah, this does leave uh, me with a, a lot of questions. Um, why one part of this race would be so superior to the other in arms and you know superior in their abilities and their aggression and all those things it really doesn't make sense it seems unless something like tampering with the dna uh, has has gone on and so that's a very good observation and i'd be interested to see if that plays out at all um in this especially in the film the other thing that i really liked about this um was and i thought was really interesting it stood out to me is this scene where they focus on the tricorder um, yeah. and this talk about technology and um, Pike asks, uh, or do holograms not exist on Earth? I stand corrected, you know, and that there's well, he this... asks, did technology take a sudden turn backwards since I've been gone in the particular frame that focuses in on the tricorder itself? Which is really interesting. I'm I'm wondering what they're trying to say here because the the hologram technology here that we see is um, you know very 
the next generation Deep Space Nine Voyager type uh, holographic technology, not something we would have seen in TOS. And uh, so it does make me wonder, this is important. I mean, this is a scene where we're focused solely on this tricorder, this, this, you know, little blurb of what April says. Yeah. I have no idea what this means. We know from the animated series that this holodeck technology was around during this time period. It was never used on TOS itself as the show, but we didn't see it until the next generation. But it was, I don't know. I mean, the next generation, they do present it like the Enterprise D is the first ship to ever have this holodeck on it. They present it that way, even though there are references to it going back. But with the tricorder here, I I really wonder, because at the end of Countdown to Darkness number one, they make a point of us seeing this Prime Universe TOS-style tricorder that April has. And then here in this comic, once again on page nine, they really zoom in on it in one frame. So they're showing us this style tricorder for some reason. Definitely. Um, I mean, obviously with doing artwork, you aren't drawing something that isn't important on the page uh and especially in a comic where you know space is a premium and so i i'm very interested to see um, where that goes yeah yeah same here now what did you think about the argument kind of between kirk and in april about the prime directive and and where kirk is on the prime directive well i think Kirk is going to be a supporter of the Prime Directive at this point because, I mean, he just came out of the Academy. It's got to be drilled into them at the Academy. It's kind of like um, like in work or business. You know, you have someone who's fresh out of school. They're very rigid in how they view everything. You know, they've been taught, this is how you do something. I mean, marketing, you know, which is something I do. It's like, this is how you do it. It's step, 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 step. These are the best practices to do this. And... Yeah, that's all great in theory, but you know, it's not really like that in in reality when you really right. become good at your trade. And so I I think, you know, April, you've got a 20-year seasoned veteran captain of Starfleet. He's seen so many things. He's had to deal with so many situations. And you've got Kirk who's fresh out of the academy and yeah, he's he's brash and he does his own thing and he's kind of a rebel. That's you know, that's what I think attracted Pike to him in the first place and he wanted to give Kirk a chance and kind of uh, push him into Starfleet. And it's a good trait for a captain. But at this point, uh, this is what I would expect, you know, between the two of them and how they are approaching the Prime Directive. What I thought was interesting here is that uh, when April is talking to Kirk, he says something that sounds very much like what Picard says to Kirk in Generations all that matters is that you're here and you have a chance to make the difference in the life of millions. Uh, you have a chance to save a world. And it's it's almost the exact same thing that Picard says to Kirk in Generations. Don't you want to make a difference? Um, and if we know anything about Kirk in any universe is that he wants to make a difference somehow, whether for good or, you know, in the mere universe for evil. Um, so... I think this is a really interesting thing because it seems like this is going to be a challenge that Kirk is going to accept in some way. So I'm going to really be interested to see how Kirk kind of evolves in the rest of this comic. 
Right. Yeah. Because April tells him that, you know, I just, I saw a situation that I couldn't walk away from that, you know, he had to do something. And, and I think you see that in the prime universe, Kirk, anyway, the Kirk that we know from the movies that, well, well even on, on the, on the TV series as well, you know, he's a captain who he might find a situation that he can't walk away from. He has to do something. I mean, obviously going to, to find Spock on Genesis is one of those where, yeah, you're, you can't do this. And so he says, well, the answer is no, I'm therefore going anyway. You know, I, I, I can't right. avoid it. And so here's a case where possibly in this universe as well, uh, this is one of those developmental moments for Kirk and how he approaches problems. Well, just as a quick side note too, again, the artwork in this is fantastic. Um, one of my favorite shots is the top of uh, page 16, and it is April standing on board the bridge of his Enterprise, which is gorgeous. I love the look of this Enterprise. It captures the spirit of the new Trek with the beauty of the old Trek, um, and, and I think... I almost kind of wished that JJ's Enterprise now looked a little bit more like this. Um, yeah. I think it's perfect. Well, you know, April's Enterprise, it's not completely because you do have one officer back there in the blue tunic. But as we were going through here the whole time, I'm, I'm looking under the jacket and I'm like, that. it really looks like one of Kirk's green tunics. It really looks like that. And then finally we get here on the bridge of April's Enterprise and we can see that Okay, no, actually it's not. It's like um it's the Abrams first uniform design twenty years earlier. Right. But almost everyone on the bridge is wearing the kind of the gold, the mustard colored gold like in the cage when you had Pike on the bridge and you had number one. And uh so I thought that was a nice little touch as well. Like you said, it does a good job of combining both. Yeah, it's it's definitely really good. Um I also thought it was interesting that we see a character we have seen in Star Trek TOS before, but they've done a little bit of gender swapping. Um, what did you think about having Harry Mudd be a woman and be a Bajoran? Well, they never call her Harry Mudd. They just call her Mudd, right? Exactly. So we don't know, uh, you know, she could be related to Harry Mudd, or it could be that in this universe, that's just Mudd. And the fact that she's a Bajoran, that really caught my attention. I think that caught my attention more than the gender swap, because having, here's a woman named Mudd, okay, yeah, that's fine, I, I get it. But Bajorans in this time period was was very interesting to, to have that turn up. I'm kind of glad to see them do that, just because of course, it's natural over the course of 45 years of developing the show on television, you're going to create races that no one thought about in the past. So you can't go back and change that. But you always wonder, you know, like, where were the Bajorans? Where were the Cardassians? Where were all these other races back in the 23rd century? So that was a that was kind of a cool twist. The other one, though, Matthew, what do you think about the fact that Robert April's first officer was named Alex Marcus. I thought that that was really interesting turn of events, especially since we know that Carol Marcus is going to be a love interest for Kirk in the next film. Exactly. Um, so 
It also makes me wonder, will Alex Marcus show up in the new film somehow? And uh, whether or not that would kind of connect this story with the, the new movie. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very interested. I mean, this, this comic keeps throwing things out that are just making me want more and more answers. And, um, you know, I don't think I'll fully get answers until the film comes out, but I'm hoping it's going to wrap up enough of the questions. So I'm not just, you know, waiting outside the theater for three months for the film to get here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I expect Alex Marcus to show up in the movie or not, but I definitely do think that the first officer being Alex Marcus is here in order to lead us into the fact that Carol Marcus is on the Enterprise with Kirk. So that's a nice little thread. I also thought it was interesting to see um, Uhura um, kind of be in command here. And um, right. I thought it was interesting that she won't sit in the chair. Um, I don't know <laughs> yeah, right. if that's uh, because she respects Jim too much at this point. Um, but it does seem like that she is fully on his side. Uh, and I thought that that was a, a great little character growth moment for her because we do know that she is going to be on Kirk's side quite a bit in this film. Um, and they really seem to be playing that up, that uh, these people are growing closer as a family. Um, and obviously we know the new film is going to be putting that to the test. So I liked seeing that little that little tidbit here. It was nice. Yeah. So this story is definitely one of those middle stories. Uh, I've likened it to the search for Spock or the Empire Strikes Back in Star Wars, where it's a, you know, you're thrown into some story and then you're pulled right back out of it. Uh, You don't really have a resolution of what's going on at all. You've got Spock running off to do something. (laughs) I don't know. We don't know yet. Uh, But given the trailer and also given the trailers for the video game that I've seen, I'm pretty sure he's going to run straight down here and then jump off of something. Yeah, I'm really hoping... There's a lot of hoping, jumping off going yeah. on. Uh, he's he's going to be practicing his cliff diving um, and uh, <laughs> just, you know, how far he can fall without dying. What I thought was interesting yeah. here is that you get this story from April and about the this this people, they're being, you know, brutalized by their own kind... And um, then all of a sudden, Spock disappears and he's running off somewhere. And it made me think that um, this is going to be one of those things that connects to the 2009 space adventure film where, you know, Vulcan's been destroyed and it's, it's had a huge impact on Spock and how he thinks and how he acts. And I think that this kind of running off to somewhere... Um, Whatever it is that he's going to be doing is kind of motivated by who Spock has become in this new universe. And it's Mm -hmm. quite different from the Spock that we know in the Prime universe. And it's leading me to want to know, okay, what the heck is Spock doing? This week we're very excited to have... Um, author David or George III with us. Um, David has written a lot of Star Trek works, uh, but he's also written an episode of the show itself, and so we're very excited to have him on. David, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for joining us. 
Yeah, we really appreciate you coming on and giving us your time. And one of the things that's always so fascinating to me when we talk to one of the authors is to hear about their first introduction to Star Trek. For you, what was that? Well, you know, the show's been on forever at this point, and uh, you know, it was in syndication for many, many years. And I, I grew up watching repeats of the original series and and the feature films, and it just always appealed to me. As a boy, the the, the spaceships and the aliens and the transporter and the phasers and all of that were certainly appealing. But even as a boy, I think one of the things that really uh, drew me in was the, the real notion of inclusion in Star Trek. The the idea that everybody deserves a seat at the table. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or green or any of the many colors, you know, black and white, um, as some characters were. Uh, doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. Doesn't matter. Nothing matters. It doesn't matter what your religion is. Doesn't matter what. Um, any of the sort of superficial characteristics of human beings, everybody deserves a chance. And that really, really appealed to me, even as a young boy. And that's really sort of what still draws me to Star Trek, is that, that real message of inclusiveness uh, and its other high ideals. I love the fact that the show was always about uh, really a morality in a lot of ways, a lot of, of morality tales wrapped up in science fiction. And that's awfully appealing as a viewer and especially now as a writer. Definitely. Um, I, I I really enjoy that. I think uh, about Star Trek is that it can appeal to a wide variety of people as well. Um, you know, so many different people can like it for so many different reasons. And I think that really speaks to what Star Trek talks about, about, you know, infinite diversity in infinite combinations and uh it really makes it a great community then to be a part of because so many different people from so many different backgrounds all sharing the same thing and in the end we all end up learning from each other and i think that that's great i do too uh, it's a, uh, star trek is not unique in that way i think there are other other things out there that tell morality tales and that uh, that speak to high ideals clearly there are in in, in television and cinema and in, in in the literary world but star trek's been doing it for a very long time it's been doing it pretty consistently well and it's brought in it's bringing in new generations of fans and uh i just i hope that as the the, the new features continue that it really speaks to those same messages, those same ideals, because I think that's one of the reasons that Star Trek has has remained popular for as long as it has. People always wonder, how could this show, this, this simple little television show from the 60s, have lasted you know, 50 years at the, almost at this point? And, and I think it's pretty simple. It's, it's the, the positive view of the future um, and appealing characters, and that, that's bringing people back time and time again brings me back time and time again yeah I, I think it's also that you can find things in the stories 20 years later 30 years later because you've changed in your life you know you can find things in those stories that are that speak to you now differently than they did in the past and so it that also helps it endure that way i think that's a great observation that uh, you the, the show uh yeah you essentially as you grow you can see more in the show i, I think that's a great observation from the different series, David, did you end up having a favorite of them, or did you just kind of enjoy all different Trek? 
You know, it's such a hard question to answer. Uh, I almost don't want to answer it because, I, 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 you know, you don't want to slight your readers out there. But, um, you know, I, I have to say that the original series holds a special place in my heart because it was through the original series that I came to Star Trek. But The Next Generation really... Um, had I think another level of sophistication in the storytelling to it, uh, and that was awfully appealing. Uh, Deep Space Nine turned it all on its ear, and it was it was filled with gray areas and uh, an alien landscape, with with Deep Space Nine being the Kardashian station and all. I, so you know, I, I find something great about all the series. And, you know, I can't, I can't really say that I have a favorite. Frankly, right now I've been writing a lot of Deep Space Nine. And so that sort of is what appeals to me right now at the moment. But I've also written the original series and Next Generation and, and Voyager. So I, you know, if I'm writing something like, if I'm writing a, a, a Voyager uh, novel, then that'll be my favorite series. <laughs> that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, when you're writing a series, what is kind of your process? So you've been writing a lot of Deep Space Nine, which for me, I'm extremely grateful for to have the complexity of your writing in the Deep Space Nine world um, and one bringing it back to the forefront again. But how do you um, what is your process there for, you know, if you're writing a lot of Deep Space Nine, how do you go through the episodes and figure out which ones you want to watch? How does that work? You know, it's interesting. It's a good question. When I first wrote Deep Space Nine. The first uh, Deep Space Nine novel that I wrote was... Actually, that's not true. <laughs> I'm going to lie. I was going to say something that's not true. The first novel, Star Trek novel I wrote was Deep Space Nine, which was uh, a novel called The 34th Rule. But the show was still on the air at the time. Uh, and it, it had just completed its fourth season. And my uh, the, the novel I wrote is tucked into that fourth season toward, toward the end, I believe. Um, and so... Um, I really, at that time, just paid attention, you know, to those basically the fourth season episodes. Um, but at, at the time, I didn't have them recorded, or I didn't have uh, DVDs available at the time. So um, it was a lot of it was just sort of memory and information that I got uh, from either the show itself, from the production office, or from Simon and Schuster. But when I wrote the next novel, which was Twilight, which was one of the novels set in the ongoing storyline that carried Deep Space Nine forward from the last episode, um, I actually went out and got all the DVDs, and I watched the series from the beginning to the ending. And one of the things that actually amazed me when I watched it that second time was how good it was. I mean, I always enjoyed it. I thought it was a pretty good show. But when I watched it again, I was constantly amazed uh, that I was just seeing more than I had seen the first time, but there's just so much, actually, what I kept saying after every episode was, I can't believe the amount of humanity in that episode, that there was so much that spoke to the human condition, just over and over and over again, and uh, I just fell in love with it. So now, when when I'm writing Deep Space Nine, or actually any of the shows, um, depending on what the continuity is that I'm dealing with, I may pick out individual episodes that... um, that I need to watch. The one that I just finished, which is called Revelation and Dust, which is the first of a, it's, it's actually not a Deep Space Nine series, but it's a crossover of, uh, of various Star Treks. The five right. book series is, starts in September. Four other excellent novelists are writing the other four. Uh, Una McCormick, uh, David Mack, 
James Swallow and Dayton Moore. That, that, that's a heck of a lineup, those four. And they're writing the other. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Um, but my novel is kicking off the series, but it's also in some ways sort of intended as an anniversary celebration of Deep Space Nine because this is the 20th, uh, 20th anniversary year of the show. And um, so I, I spent a lot of time looking at Emissary, the very first episode of Deep Space Nine. But I will actually go to whatever episodes I need to if it bears on my story. Sometimes it can bear on my story in ridiculously small details, like I'll need to know whether this person's quarters had, you know, a single panel door or a double panel door. You know, I might want to write something like that, you know, just as a little nuance, and and I'll need to actually go look at a scene to make sure I, I remember it correctly. But more often, it's it's the complexities of, of a story. And, and I also need to check dialogue to make sure I remember things correctly. You don't always, after so much time, um, and, you know, you what you, your memories are often colored by also, you know, what you're thinking at the time when you're watching the episode. So I always try and make sure um, that that I have a, a clear grasp of the show. What's more difficult is keeping track of what's been written because there have been, I don't know, I think 20-plus long works that have followed up the from the end of the show. And keeping track of all those details is... That's difficult. <laughs> yeah, that's immense, especially when you start getting to the end with, um, you know, some of the storylines that didn't get completely wrapped up with the Ascendants and what happens to Kira become a Vedic. I mean, you know, the whole ah, the thing. Ascendants, ah, yeah. get Vedic Kira. Yes, exactly. I hear about that from time to time. I I know you do because <laughs> everybody on the 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 boards talks about it because you know they want to know what happened. But you're right. There's so many details that go into that relaunch series. Uh, it does get hard to to handle. In fact, Chris and I are, are rereading that series from the very beginning um, on the show when we're not doing an interview. And uh, it's really interesting to go back because it's really good. It's a great series. I love it as a reader. Forgetting even that I've been fortunate enough to be able to contribute to it, I, as a reader, love the, the literary works that have, have continued Deep Space Nine. I, I'm, I'm just I'm thrilled to be a part of it. But even as a reader, I'm just thrilled to be able to go and read them. But, of course, if I need a detail for something or I need to try and remember something, um, it can be very difficult to try. It's, it's different than popping in a DVD and, you know, fast-forwarding through a scene or something when I have to right. go try and remember which book something was in and then go try and page through that book. Fortunately, I now have electronic copies of most of those works and so I can and do I can do searches but even that's a, a little tricky too so uh, I actually may go and do some rereading um, myself um, in the future uh, I actually had to do a little bit of rereading for the one that I just finished but oh wow um, yeah but you, you know fortunately I didn't have to reread you know, 12 novels and right. part of the problem is not reading rereading all of those novels it's rereading all of those novels in the amount of time I have to read to, to read them. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. that's a lot of work. Writing. Yeah. I run into that just doing the reviews for the books uh, for the site itself and you know when we're reading a novel on the show, you know, and trying to do my own reading and the comics and so it yes, I completely understand you get under that time crunch and you're like I have to finish this book. 
I've been very fortunate too in that every now and then, I actually haven't done it in a little while, but every now and then I will approach a fan, uh, somebody that I've met, uh, a reader that I've met maybe at the convention or, or even on one of the Star Trek boards or something, uh, and um, ask them, hey, do you remember this detail? And do you perhaps remember where it is and exactly what that detail was? And uh, I've had some, some people who have been very generous with their help uh, in that regard. Um, with so many Star Trek fans out there and so many Star Trek readers, we have kind of, if we want, we have a, a sort of a built-in research department. So I try right. not to take advantage of people, but uh, every now and then they've, uh, they, they've been able to help me. I, and basically, I ask people if they know it off the top of their head, which, you know, I don't want people have to go dig it into books any more than I have to go do it, you know. Right. I find that if I want an answer, especially on some of the board's, um, I'll put it out there and uh, Christopher L. Bennett will come up with the answer for me um, because he seems to know everything there is to know about Star Trek from literary universe to, you know, uh, Star Trek shows. And so uh, he always ends up having an answer for me, which is great. <laughs> um, well, how did you, David, get into uh, a writing? Is this something that you wanted to do um always or did you just kind of fall into it or how did that come about well virtually always i learned to read at a young age my mom taught my sister and me to read at a very young age and more than that she taught us to love reading she she just opened our eyes to the joys of reading and so i i was reading novels very young and i wanted to tell stories as a uh, as a consequence of that and um my my dad actually did some editing and did some writing, and my grandfather actually wrote a novel as well, a very short novel. Um, and and I don't, so I don't know if it's in the genes or whatever, but that that all the reading I think, and maybe that that uh, writing heritage it drove me to want to tell stories. You know, when I was just a boy, and um, as I got older, I realized you know I wanted to be an artist in that way. I wanted to write. But I didn't want to be a starving artist. So right. when I went to school, when I went to college, I studied mathematics and scientific computing. And I had a minor in writing and in philosophy and other things. And, but I, but I made, mostly studied mathematics. And, and, I, when I, and I did that in graduate school as well. And when I was gainfully employed, I finally at last turned my eye to writing professionally. And one of the first things I actually ended up pitching was to Star Trek Voyager, and I ended up selling that So, um, w with uh, a friend of mine. So that was, that was very exciting. What was that uh, like getting one of your story ideas turned into the episode Prime Factors? Well, you know, and that was, a, you know, that was, a, it was both satisfying and peculiar. The, the whole process of pitching is it, it, at least initially, it was a very nerve-wracking experience. Um, but it was certainly, obviously, a, a great to, to sell something. And what turned up on screen was I was largely satisfied with sort of the, the main thrust of the episode is the last scene, which is a scene where Captain Janeway realizes that Tuvok, her friend Tuvok, has essentially betrayed her, has essentially violated her orders, committed an act of mutiny, really. And that was really the reason 
to do the episode, at least as far as I was concerned and my, my uh, writing partner was concerned. And I'm, I'm glad that, that at some point that got pulled out of the script and then I ultimately got put back in. And I'm, I was glad of that. Um, but it would have been nice if that had actually played out in subsequent episodes uh, because that's really what we wanted to set up this, this interesting dynamic, but it really didn't. So, but it was, it was, you know, an interesting experience and satisfying in that way. And in a way it sort of got me into writing the novels. Oh, that's great. Um, so you did the, your first Star Trek book was, you know, the 34th rule. Uh, and you actually co-wrote that with Armin Shimmerman because it's a quirk centered novel. Um, how did that work? Well, it was interesting. After pitching to Voyager and selling the episode of Voyager, with a, uh, my writing partner had actually worked on the show, and he knew Armin, and he said that Armin, unlike a lot of actors, he didn't want to direct, he wanted to write. And in fact, he had written another novel. He'd written a novel called The Merchant Prince, co-written it with a, a, a science fiction writer. Um, and um, so Armin wanted to Pitch, come up with some stories and pitch to the show. So we met with Armin, and we came up with some story ideas, and we pitched them to Deep Space Nine, to the writers, writing staff, and didn't sell any. And we were walking out of the, the Hart building, which is the building in which the Star Trek offices were housed on the Paramount lot, and Armin said, you know, we should, we should turn one of these into a novel. And I was like, yeah, right. But <laughs> I ultimately called up pocketbooks and I said the, the man editing at the time was John Ordover and uh, I, I got John's name and I, I talked to him and I said you know how'd you like an, a, a novel from one of the actors on the show and he said yeah that'd be great but you have to go through the same process as everybody else which meant writing a narrative outline which told the story in broad strokes from beginning to middle to end and also detailed all the character arcs within the, the novel and then after that, if that passed muster, then we would have to write three or four chapters, maybe 50 pages, to demonstrate that we could actually write. So Arm and I spent a few weeks writing a, an hour television show, which actually was 42 minutes, a uh, 42-minute script. It's a lot different than writing you know, a 100,000-word novel. So Armin and I sat down for a few weeks. The other writer didn't, wasn't interested in writing a novel. So Armin and I sat down over a course of a few weeks and belted out this much more complicated story. And we, we, I wrote up the, the outline, and I remember faxing it to John Ordover at Pocket Books, and 15 minutes later, my phone rang and said, okay, we'll buy it. I said, well, what about the 50 pages you wanted? Nah, we understand. We, just from reading your outline, we know you can write. So that was <laughs> nice. So, and I, I'm, t I'm telling the story the way Armin also tells it. I, I, there was a time when I wouldn't tell it this way because I felt like I shouldn't, but Ar Armin says this. So uh, the way we were going to work was I was going to write the first chapter, and then I would hand it over to Armin, and he would make changes, make additions, make subtractions, whatever. And then we would go back forth a couple of times, and then we'd have, you know, chapter one would be done. We'd move on to chapter two. I wrote chapter one, I handed it to Armin, he called me up, he said, I love this, what do you need me for? <laughs> so I actually ended up writing the 34th rule. Oh, that's and great. That's perfectly, I mean, I wrote the novel, he and, he and I worked on the story together, but I actually ended up writing the novel, which was fine for me. I discovered, that was my first novel, I discovered that writing by myself was a much 
easier way to go than writing with a partner. So that, that turned out to be a good thing for me. But from there, after the 34th rule, every subsequent novel that I've written, Simon & Schuster's called me up and said, hey, you want to write a Star Trek novel? So that's a really nice thing. Yeah, that is so, that's great. And I hear that from a few of the authors and they've had that joy of just Pocket being very interested in them again to come back and write. Um, and I think, honestly, as a reader, what um, they probably like you for and what we like you for as readers is that you do great character stories. Um, and that fits really well within, uh, especially the world of, you know, Deep Space Nine, uh, the character studies you did in the Crucible series. Um, I think that it's what makes the best of Star Trek is when we get to dig into our favorite characters. And so I'm very thankful that they keep asking you back because I know that doesn't happen for everyone. Well, I, I'm, I'm certainly happy. And I thank you for saying that too. I, I concentrate a lot on, I would agree that my, my novels are largely character oriented. You know, you can have a plot oriented novel or TV show or whatever, you know, something like Law and Order. It was very, it's a procedural. It was very plot oriented. There wasn't a lot about the characters. They were just carrying the story forward. Um, and, and you didn't get to know them personally, really, other than sort of superficial characteristics. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But I, for me, it's much more satisfying both as a writer and as a reader to really get into the characters and, and the story be a function of the characters and they, they're not just they're not just getting you from part a, point point a to point b they're 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 changing along the way they're they're facing adversity they're they're overcoming adversity they're they're having triumphs they're having setbacks so yeah i'm i'm glad that you think that uh i write good character stories because i i strive to do that well um some of your latest Deep Space Nine books have kind of created, a for me, a little bit of a trilogy. You wrote uh, one of the books in the original Typhon Pack series, Rough Beasts of Empire, and then you had Plagues of Night and Rays the Dawn. And they kind of create this nice trilogy of, of the story of Cisco after Unity, which we hadn't seen a lot of Cisco after Unity. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really kind of get to carry forward because, you know, also... For those who don't know, who might not have read the relaunch series, Deep Space Nine was behind all of the other relaunches they did, and so Deep Space Nine kind of jumps time, and there's a kind of four a years. lot. Four years. Yes. We'd just gotten into 2377, and then the following book was in 2381. So yeah, we jumped four years ahead. So you have a lot of Cisco's life there that you know we don't really know too much about. So Rough Beasts of the Empire there is a hard book for Cisco. Um, he is dealing with a ton of things and, and a lot of fans, um, reacted really strongly to that. Um, for me, it was difficult to read my favorite character be so crushed. But once I read, obviously plagues of night and raise the dawn, everything makes sense because it works together as this trilogy. But how did you kind of come up with what the next steps for Cisco were going to be? kind of out of that four years of silence. To... Yeah, that, that, was, that was an interesting process. And it's interesting how it is, it, some of the reactions have been interesting to the novel, to the, to the series of novels, but especially Rough Beasts of Empire. 
and I actually expected some of the, the sort of blowback that I got on it. Um, it's very interesting. For, here's the thing about Cisco. Actually, here are a few things about Cisco. First of all, I love Ben Cisco. I think he's a great character. He's so easy to write. Um, I, I mean, I'm just, I, I have no problem getting inside his head, and, and I, he's just a fascinating figure for so many reasons. But the way he was drawn from beginning to end in the television series just made him such a complex individual, and that's, that's just a blast to, to write. So when I got Rough Beasts of Empire, I was asked to do two things. I was asked to jump the series ahead four years, and I was asked to get Ben Sisko back into Starfleet. Now, the thing is, we didn't, you're right, after Unity, we didn't have a lot of Ben Sisko, and sort of, I guess the character was sort of just on Bejor with his wife, Cassidy, and with his daughter, Rebecca, and essentially, I guess in retirement, really. And as, as a reader and as a fan, for me, that was very satisfying, that his arc had sort of come to an end, and that he was just essentially living happily ever after. I liked that. Right. I know that everybody liked that. I think as fans of the show, people wanted Cisco back. I can understand that. I have no problem getting Cisco back. I wasn't sure how you could get him back into Starfleet. Certainly, I wasn't sure how you could get him back onto Deep Space Nine in any real believable way. I mean, at that time, Kira was the captain was a captain and the commanding officer of Deep Space Nine. How do you get Ben Sisko back there and had it be actually believable and satisfying? And then there's this question of the four years that we don't see. We had a, the big Ascendance storyline that was proceeding forward, and we seem to be right on the verge of, of heading into whatever that conflict is, and then all of a sudden it's four years later. Now, I have the choice of either ignoring it completely, spending a few pages, since I'm not telling that story, I could spend a few pages saying what happened, or neither of which are, are very compelling uh, uh, courses of action as far as I'm concerned, as a writer or as a reader. Or I could do what I did, which is see little hints about what happened in the hopes that that story would ultimately be told. As far as getting Cisco back into Starfleet, how do you do that? Well, I mean, we could keep him as the emissary, but haven't, it seemed to me that we trod that ground a lot. I mean, we, we, the whole series, and then, you know, we had the whole sequence leading up to Unity in the novels. seems like that, to me, the story of Cisco reaching the end of his being the emissary had played out for us. So... Um, I focused on, you asked me what earlier what episodes I looked at. I looked at a lot of episodes before I wrote that novel. A lot of episodes uh, starting with the one in which the prophets tell him if he, met, if he spends his life with Cassidy, he'll know nothing but sorrow. And that to me was a loose end from the series that never got resolved. So I thought, let me take this and resolve it. Let me show that that you know, you'll know nothing but misery. Oh, well, let me show that. Let me show what's happening. And so I glommed onto that detail, and I tried to draw a, a big story out of it for Cisco. And it was, I mean, I also like to challenge myself as a writer. 
I like to up the degree of difficulty. And I knew I would face some opposition with Cisco fans. And some people say I drew Cisco in a way that was not consistent with the character we saw in the show. But I, I beg to differ <laughs> because I watched those episodes again and again. And there were episodes, there's, there's uh, The Reckoning, where, where a paw wraith inhabits Jake, and, and, and a prophet inhabits Kira, and they're, doing, they're about to do battle against each other, and Ben Sisko has the option, he has the ability to stop that conflict from happening, to stop that battle. But he doesn't. He chooses not to. And he's rooting for the prophet, which means he's rooting against the paw wraith, who's inhabiting his son, Seems to me like Jake might end up dead from that. Here's a, he, he, so this is what this character did. He risked his own son's life. There's the episode where he risks his own life trying to, to uh, experience these, these visions he's having. He wants to experience them so that he can understand the plan that the prophets have. And he's risking his own life. And if he dies, he abandons Cassidy. He abandons his son. So this character has done things in the past, done things on the series itself, that demonstrates that sometimes, even a head of family, he follows the prophets. He'll do what, they, what he thinks they want him to do. And so I didn't feel like I was drawing a different Cisco in Rough Beasts of Empire than we had seen previously. Some people disagree, but I, was, I, I loved the character. I was scrupulous about trying to draw the same person we'd always seen. And one of the great things I think about Deep Space Nine is that there's a lot of gray. These people yeah. are heroic, but then you have Cisco doing what he did with Garrick in, uh, in The Pale Moonlight when they bring the right. Romulans into the war in what is not exactly the most moral of ways. So, you know, there's, like I said, a lot of gray in Deep Space Nine, and that's fun to play with as a writer. And for me as a reader, it's fun to read that too. Yeah. And I, I liked the way that, you know, the continuation of Cisco being a very deep, um, thoughtful person. You know, he doesn't really do things very rashly. He's, he's always trying to figure things out um, and do the right thing. Um, he, he has a, a strong moral compass as a center. And, you know, he also has this faith which is very different for a lot of people in the 24th century to understand. And that drives him as well. And I think that's what made him such a compelling character. It's not something you see a lot of times uh, on television, all the, you know, the, everything we dealt with in the Bajoran faith and how Cisco reacted to it. There's another component of Cisco and Rough Beasts of Empire too, which is this. Some people thought, you know, I, I, that Cisco was now a deadbeat dad and all of that kind of thing. But here's the question. The real question at the, at the very base of every action Cisco takes in Rough Beasts of Empire, if you were told that, for a fact, if you stayed married to your wife, she would something terrible would happen to her and something ha would, terrible would happen to your, your daughter. But if you left them, they would be fine. What would you do? I mean, this is not, it's not as though the prophets are predicting something. We're given to understand that the prophets are nonlinear, that their future is the same as their past, that it's all of their existence wrapped up into one. And they're telling Cisco something that they see. They see that if this is what you do, then this is what will happen. 
how do you react to that? What do you do? I mean, if you fight against it and then they die, if, if Cassidy and Rebecca die, how do you get back from that? How do you, how do you survive that? Yeah. I, I, to me, it was a, a compelling question of how to deal with it. And, and, you know, Cisco didn't exactly say, okay, I'm going to bolt and was happy about it. He wasn't happy about it. He didn't want to leave his wife and daughter, but he thought he had to do so for their own safety. To me, that's the moral thing to do. I mean, I guess. I mean, it's, a, it's a very difficult moral question. It, it really stems from whether or not you believe 100% that some, or, or even 99% that something bad will happen if you don't leave. And we've seen that he believes the prophets. Yeah, and I like, too, that you know the series has given us reason to believe along with Cisco that he has a good reason for believing the prophets um it helps when you're born of them um i think (laughs) yeah i think yeah when you're part prophet it kind of helps it does um it's it's like yeah you know mom said you know i'll I'll believe it it's got to be true well you know he's he's had the you know the prophets that you say have given him reason to believe and it's 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 sort of different than the, the notion of say, a 20 or 21st century uh, humanity believing in one god or another, because these are beings with whom he's had contact, actual contact. And you can ask the question of what makes a god and all of that, but they certainly exist in a different way than he does, than, than humanoids do, and they've been able to demonstrate great power and great ability to know the past, the future, to link it all together, to me, it was all a fascinating landscape on which to, to, to see stories told. And then I'm so fortunate to be able to tell some of those stories myself. Well, um, you know, after that uh, book ended, I wasn't sure, you know, as a reader where, you know, Deep Space Nine was going to go next. And I was really excited when they decided to allow you to tell some very Deep Space Nine centered stories. I mean, they were labeled under the, under the Typhon Pack series, but... Really, these are Deep Space Nine books, uh, Plagues of um, Night and Raise the Dawn. So you not only got to pick up on the Cisco storyline, but you took all of the political machinations that you had seen through the other Typhon Pack series, from the Romulans to the Breen to the Zenkathy, and you put all of them into the same story. I don't know how you did it because it's one of the most intricate Star Trek stories I've ever read um, with everything that's going on. What it's a bit busy. <laughs> it really is, but it keeps me oh man, I was turning the pages like crazy trying to get to the end to see how this was all gonna work out. What was your motivation and inspiration for this this kind of duology that really kind of completes the this you know, the storyline you started with Cisco in Rough Beast of Empire? Well, you know, when I wrote Rough Beast, I started Cisco on this arc, and he, you know, all the arcs we've seen actually back in the TV series, but then also in the in the books that followed the series, don't all resolve in in one episode or one novel. Some some do, but plenty of them seed, uh, you know, storylines moving forward. And I had always envisioned story Cisco's storyline continuing. Um, and I had in mind what I would do, but I had no guarantee that I was going to be writing the next Deep Space Nine novel. Uh, I was fortunate to be able to do that. Um, so I had an idea for Cisco for these two. I was offered two books, and uh, you know, basically the, the two-book series. And 
um, I had an idea for what I wanted to do politically, and it really required me to draw all of the the, the Typhon pack stories together. I, I just that's what I needed to do, and and so that's what I tried to do, um, just to try and make one whole cloth out of the out of the different pieces that we'd had made so far, and I wanted for various reasons it was my editor and I wanted to approach Deep Space Nine in a way that if there was never another Deep Space Nine novel this was a good way to end it and yet if there were more Deep Space Nine novels this was a good way to restart it so those were the the ideas that I had in mind those were the goals that I wanted to fulfill and um, I, I I really enjoyed writing those books. I really, I, I've been writing, as you say, a lot of Deep Space Nine, and that's been a lot of fun. And in fact, the one I just finished, which will be out in September, is the new Deep Space Nine, which is also a lot. Yeah, I am chomping at the bit to read that because I really want to see what happens next in the story of Deep Space Nine. <laughs> I'm already, I'm, I, I want to look forward past that to the next one, but. There's yeah. no guarantee that there will be a next one. I would say for all those Deep Space Nine fans out there, this is going to be, sound very self-serving, but I really mean it sort of not just as a writer but as a reader. If you want there to more, be more Deep Space Nine, if you want there ever to be a chance of there being an Ascendance story, you know, telling everything that happened, by these neck, this negative... I'm not the only one who has Deep Space Nine elements in their story in the fall. There are other books, too buy these books, support these books, and that's the way that they'll go forward. Because Deep Space Nine's sort of always on the cusp, you know? I think that might be why we haven't seen Deep Space Nine on a book. We see Star Trek Typhon Pact, and yet it happens to really be a Deep Space Nine novel. Um, so I, I, if you want there to be more Deep Space Nine books, if you ever want there to be a chance for the Ascendant story to be told, buy these books. <laughs> I know that's self-serving because I wrote one of them, but still. Oh, but it's a good point. No, I promise to make people buy them uh, because I will use the platform I have to make people buy them. Good. Uh, I'm glad to because, hear that. Well, and yeah. you know, forgetting about it, even if I, if I don't get to write another one, as a reader, I want them to go on because I really yeah. have enjoyed what all these other writers have done as well. It's just been – and what Marco has done and Margaret Clark and it's just Marco Palmieri who, who – started the, the, the Deep Space Nine relaunch, and Margaret Clark, who is, has continued with Ned Schlesinger. It's just been, um, it's been great. It's been great as, as a reader. Uh, I mean, I really love following these characters. One of the uh, interesting things is, you know, in these two books, as you, we talked about a little bit, you do get to bring Cisco full circle as emissary, and that, you know, his path as the emissary gets to be uh, complete it gets to be finished um do you have any idea where that might leave him just as a you know a follower of the prophets now and i i mean uh, uh, a, i do you know. i okay. do i do have an idea okay good and and here's the thing too <laughs> is um it's not as though storylines in the television series didn't get wrapped up i mean there were certainly loose ends but you know odo went back to the dominion and back to the great link and and uh, Kira took over as the commanding officer. I mean, there were storylines on the series that got wrapped up. Cisco ascended to the Celestial Temple, and if this was the last Deep Space Nine we ever had, if there were no books, there was nothing afterward, 
some of these storylines got wrapped up and that's where they would be. And now, you know, Cisco has essentially run his course as emissary. Again, we could go back and retread some of that, but I think it might be more interesting to take him forward somewhere, take him to someplace different. Doesn't mean he won't ever come back. It's a, it's a, storytelling is a process. And particularly when you have novels that are telling the story of an ongoing series, you don't have to wrap everything up. And certainly one of the hallmarks of the series was change. You know, Dr. Exactly. Bashir is a young, brash, naive man. Except, no, he's actually genetically engineered and superhuman. Oh, okay. I mean, the show changed on a dime. And I think Marco and Margaret and all the, all the editors and writers have done a good job in the, in the series of books keeping that alive, keeping the notion of, of ongoing stories and, and frequent changes and not being able to know where something's going. Uh, I've, they've kept that alive, I think, pretty well. And I'm speaking again as a reader myself. Well, a lot had changed in Deep Space Nine. We talked about, um, you know, things we didn't get to see. Uh, certain characters had moved on to different positions. Um, for you, especially in this series, again, how did you, you made it feel very natural, which, you know, you said was a struggle, especially with Rough Beasts of Empire, to do. Um, but again, when you read Plagues of Night and Raise the Dawn, I don't see Kira being a Vedic is, is like, what? Why is this happening? It just, it kind of feels like a natural extension of somebody who's spent her whole life fighting, becoming somebody who would devote herself to uh, the spiritual life. How did that come about? Well, you know, we, she, we know she's been, she got, she was strong of faith her whole life. And yes, she was you know, the first quarter century of her life she was she was under an occupying force and fighting that battle and then she comes to the space nine and she's still fighting the cardassians in one way or another and, and fighting all sorts of other things fighting herself fighting her prejudices all of these things and uh, yeah so when we, we when we were leaping forward four years from the soul key to rough beasts of empire the question is okay who's going to be staying in place Who who's not moving well it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for nobody to be changing in those four years because that's not what the show was, you know? Right. So I had to think, okay, where's, where, you know, I started with Ben Sisko because that was, you know, one of the things I was given to do was get him back into Starfleet. The second thing is, okay, where's Kira? And to me, all right, we're, we're, we're leaping forward. We're now in 2381. So Kira's, you know, 35, 36 years old. Different than being 20 or 25 when the when the television series started maybe she's growing up maybe you know maybe she's finding some peace maybe she's you know moving on so i, I think making her a vedic was an interesting choice um i mean if i didn't think it was interesting i wouldn't have done it there are probably <laughs> other choices that could have been made this is the one i made because i you know this is something i thought would be interesting to explore and i don't think that kira i i know kira's arc hasn't as a vedic has not been explored. It hasn't been explored how she quite got there. I mean, I think it's understandable how somebody of such a strong faith could eventually get to that position where they, they enter the, essentially the priesthood. But so that story hasn't been told. But, but also going forward, well, let's explore what this is going to mean to Kira. And we saw a little bit of that in, I think, Raise the Dawn. 
Um, but I think there's still plenty more to explore. And she's, Kira is also a great, great character. I love Kira. Yes. Yeah, she has one of the, uh, we've talked about on our show, the orb, which Chris and I do. It's dedicated to Deep Space Nine. So we just talk Deep Space Nine all the time. Um, but we talked about how next to Cisco, Kira probably has the best arc of anyone in the show. Um, yeah. And it's so compelling. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I think I agree, both in the series and actually in the books, too. I thought what, what Marco and the writers did with her attainder, her being essentially excommunicated for a while from the Bajoran religion, what a genius thing to do. Right. What a great idea that was, because, I mean, this is, this is the, the, the ultimate adversity you can give to a person of faith, is that, okay, you have this faith, but you're now no longer allowed to practice it with all of the other people who share your faith. It's fantastic. I mean, there is no drama without conflict. Exactly. You need conflict, and that you know, that conflict can come in, a, in any number of ways. But it's always fascinating when our heroes have to face things like that. At least, I mean, that that's how I feel about it. Um. Well, you know, this series, uh, you actually destroy Deep Space Nine. Um, Spoiler alert. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> And um, it was sad to see it go. Um, you know, I I don't know why I loved the Cardassian monstrosity so much. I do. I know why you loved it. You probably loved it for the same reason I loved it. Because this was, again, Michael, Michael Piller and Rick Berman created Deep Space Nine. And Michael especially was so gifted at, at creating a really textured landscape upon which to draw stories and he really did that exceptionally well with deep space nine the whole notion of the bajoran religion and the occupation and all of that cisco's backstory the loss of his wife raising a single uh, raising his son as a single parent all great stuff and part of that was this this actual physical setting which was different than anything we'd ever seen before. Oh, yeah, we might see an alien spaceship, an alien space station, whatever. But we never lived in it. We never existed there. And to have our characters, essentially, initially at least, fighting their environment, it's, just, it's a fascinating thing. And uh, I'm still amazed, looking back, I ended up pitching, I wrote a, a narrative outline for, my, for, for Plagues of Night and for Raise the Dawn, and... In, that, in, in, in the, those outlines, the end of the first outline was the destruction of Deep Space Nine. And I was just waiting for the phone call that told me, yeah, no, you can't do that. You see, the show is called Deep Space Nine, so we kind of need one of those. <laughs> <laughs> but the people with whom I work, um, in this case it was Margaret Clark and, and Ed Schlesinger and, and at Paramount, or not Paramount, CBS, <laughs> John Van Sitters, are, are there's some creative people, and they see very often the, the advantages uh, of, uh, of certain st- storytelling ideas. Uh, and again, Deep Space Nine was nothing but change in the TV series itself. So why not keep that going? And to me, it wasn't just a gimmick. I didn't I didn't do it because okay, let's just do it. It served the story I was trying to tell. But I still right. am amazed that nobody said, no, you can't do that. Yeah, I, I I feel like that the destruction of Deep Space Nine fits in the same way that Kirk destroying the Enterprise in 3 you know, works for me. 
because it yeah. feels organic to the story. It's not just, oh, we're going to destroy a ship like they did in Generations. We want a new right, one, yeah. so we'll have Troy crash it. It'll be fine. Everybody will laugh. Um, right. We need a ship that'll look better on the big screen, so let's get rid of this one. That was... Yeah. Well, Deep Space Nine, Tarek Noor, has actually essentially been a character in the show and in the books. Yeah. So right. So it's essentially the death of a character. So now you have, you know, what do you do? Do you replace that character? And, you know, I actually wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. Um, I mean, I knew I was going to build a new space station, but I didn't know I was, you know, I wasn't going to call it Deep Space Nine A. <laughs> <laughs> and there was already a Deep Space 10. I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but it, it, everything that happened sort of happened, as you used the word just a few minutes ago, organically. And that's the way stories should be told. You don't try and force things. When you try and force things, they just it, it doesn't turn out well. It's bad enough when you don't force things and they don't turn out well, but when you force things, they never turn out well. So, um, and I'm I'm... I, I, right now, I'm, I'm pretty much, uh, I'm among a very small number of people who have been on the new Deep Space Nine. I'm very excited about it. I cannot wait to see what the station looks like. So, um, yeah, I just want the cover art to come out so I can know what it looks like. Um, well, nobody said it was going to be on the cover. Yeah. Well, nobody said it wasn't. Yeah. I, it, well, uh, hopefully they'll give us a pullout then with, you know, an awesome poster yeah, I don't know. I, I yeah. I mean, I'm I, I have hopes for for how people will be introduced to Deep Space Nine, but uh, at the very least, you'll 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 have a paint a picture painted in words. <laughs> at the very well, least. Yeah. I, I I was thinking too. You could do it in the Star Trek magazine. Uh, you could give us a nice poster in that. You know that mm. works. So, because um, I want it on my wall. Um, you're not the only one. I've had some talks <laughs> yeah. with my with my editors about about such things, and you know, of course, everything comes with a cost. You know, I mean, it, that's it, true. It's, you know, they they have budgets and they have to deal with what they can spend on things. But um, I, I'm hopeful that ultimately we'll get to actually visually see Deep Space Nine. But at least we'll be able to read Deep Space Nine, and yeah. I, I've had fun uh, on the new station. Yeah, you should hook up with our friend Sean Taranjo, who did the uh, Titan for the Titan series. He draws uh-huh. just fantastic ships. Uh, Pocketbooks should hook up with him again and get that vision of the station going. Well, I, I have I, I'm not in the business of hiring, uh, you know, <laughs> but I have I'm in the business of saying, hey, why don't we do something like this? So I'm not sure. Uh, I have an idea of what's what's happening and. Um, I'm hopeful for what we might see in the future, but I, you know, who knows? Like I said, the best way to get any Deep Space Nine in the future, whether it be books or cover art or posters or Star Trek magazine articles and and, and artwork, is for these things to actually sell well. I, I hate, yeah. I really hate saying that because I sound like a salesman and I don't like that. But I love reading these novels, love writing them too, uh, but I really want to keep reading them. <laughs> So I hope that that will keep happening. I hope that these books will do well. Like I say, I'm I'm not the only one with Deep Space Nine elements in this five book series that's starting in September. Um, there are others who will will visit Deep Space Nine elements. So hopefully that will people will get those as well. It's a great lineup. I mean, Una McCormack and James Swallow, David Mack and Dayton Warder, all in my estimation, just terrific writers. 
Yeah, they are, and we've gotten to talk to them all. Yeah, we've had all of them on the show here. That's fantastic. Yeah, so they've been fantastic. I, I actually, I've listened to a couple of your episodes. I, I listened to Dayton's and Kirsten's, um, and I need to listen to the others. Have they, have they teased the fall at all? They have, actually. And so, in fact, when we talked to Una, um, we had the grand idea that once Dayton's book comes out, I think next January, we should try and get everybody on on one huge podcast. Wow. So we could talk to all of you together and just let y'all, we'll just like answer, we'll just ask a question and then we'll throw it out there for the wolves to just like, you know, go at it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, all that requires is good timing since Una and James are in the UK. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I'm in Tokyo. Um, so. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, We're wow. spread out and everywhere. Dave, yeah. And Dave Mack is on the East Coast. Exactly. Dayton's in the middle of the country and I'm on the West Coast. <laughs> But, yeah. hey, I'm all for it. You know, we've had, uh, when we started with the Typhon Pact, the first four novels, uh, David Mack and Dayton Ward and uh, Mike Martin and me, um, we we did have a, a, we've had conference calls. You know, we got on the phone at the same time and beat some ideas around, and uh, that, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I bet. David, I wanted to ask you, you know, you destroy Deep Space Nine, but by the end of Raise the Dawn, you bring back its core by um, allowing some characters to kind of come back into the fold. Um, Miles comes back, which I couldn't be more excited about because him and Julian belong together forever uh, as friends. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, you know, Odo is back. He's trapped now because of the wormhole being closed right now. Um, you have, uh, Cisco who's back in Starfleet. We're not quite sure, you know, if he'll be involved with, uh, you know, anything with Deep Space Nine. I've got my fingers crossed though. So for you, was that kind of the plan to kind of rebirth the series? You know, it, it, it was and it wasn't. It was certainly, and the same thing I mentioned earlier, it was a, it was a way to try, I, I certainly wanted to try and cap the series if this was going to be the end, because it was unclear whether it was going forward or not. But I also wanted to set, set the stage for it to actually continue going forward. And I, to that end, I mean, I knew there was going to be a new station. I knew there was, it wasn't going to happen overnight, you know, that there had to be a process and that there was a story in that. But as far as, um, I mean, I did, I, I, I was, as far as bringing back characters, you know, when the series ended, so many people were gone. Worf was gone. Miles was gone. Nog was gone. Wait, was Nog gone? Where was Nog? No, Nog was still on the No, Nog was there. Odo was gone. Worf was gone. O'Brien was gone. Cisco was gone. I mean, just, you know, the, the cast was gutted. The cast of characters was gutted. And so when we started telling stories again in the, in the books, we could have brought everybody back, but that would not have been very compelling. I don't think I don't think you could have done it in a way that was very reasonable. Now, after at this point at the end of uh, plagues of night, it's 2383. So it's, you know, seven years after the end of the series, eight years after the end of the series. So I think at that point, bringing some characters back no longer seems like, oh, they're just trying to undo things and they're doing it in an unnatural way. I think it happened sort of very organically. I didn't 
actually, I thought it was going to bring back Miles. I didn't know about Nog, or maybe it was the other way around. And it just became a natural thing to do as I was writing the book. And actually, Odo was a decision I made almost in the 11th hour, almost at the last minute of writing. Um, I, did, I, did, I, I didn't. I didn't really plan uh, to, to, to have Odo in the Alpha Quadrant, and then it seemed just like the right thing to do, and uh, especially because we were building a new station. Not that Odo would want to go back to the station, but, I mean, the character. You have to be true to the characters, too. But let's put him back there and see what happens. And now it's interesting because Kira seems lost, the, the wormhole is gone, Odo seems trapped, it's all, you know. So, I mean, there was intention there, but it also it was part of an organic storytelling process that allowed me to bring those characters back, too. And even though Roe was not a part of the television series, not part of Deep Space Nine, she had been in the books from the beginning, you know, from the beginning of our relaunching the show in book form, um, and so she's there, and she sort of feels like, you know, a part of the ongoing cast. And now we have some new characters, and they've been through some books now, and so we're going to get to know them. Um, I think it's, I, I don't know, I, I, I hope that it's organic. I hope that it feels right. It feels right to me to have Miles back and to have Nog back and, uh, and Odo as well. And the book that I write, the book that, that I've written that people will read in September goes a long way to launching the four books that follow it, but it also hints at things to come. Um, you know, it resolves a couple of things. You know, it's basically, you know, I hope it's just a, not just an episode, but I hope it's another, you know, installment of the series that satisfies people and that gives them their fix of Deep Space Nine. It certainly gave me mine, but takes me Good. a long time to write these. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I I definitely have uh, my fingers crossed that I want people to be buying these books. You know, if you haven't read Plagues of Night, Raise uh, the Dawn, Rough Beasts of Empire, uh, and you love Deep Space Nine, please get these, read them. Um, like, you know, you said, David, you're not going to get any more Deep Space Nine if they don't sell. And... This is a fantastic series. Yeah, and I'm not just talking about my... I, I'm not just trying to sell my books. That's the, I mean, I, 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 like I say, other people in the fall, in the series, the right, fall... Right, exactly. Which is actually out this fall, um, uh, are, are, are Deep Space Nine related. So, you know, it's important to support them as well. Right. And, and it's, it's important to support them. I mean, I guess, you know, the Star Trek books aren't going away right now, but Deep Space Nine may be on the cusp of going away. I, I, it's not, you know... It, it need, things need to sell well in order for them to, you know, keep being published. Well, and I want to say too, um, you know, D Space Nine without that relaunch, I don't know if Star Trek books would have been as popular because I think it started a whole new way of looking at the Star Trek book series of relaunching the show, and it was so successful for Pocket um, and has done so well. Uh, I really do hope that it will be given another chance to be continued. And uh, well, you know, really it's a, a double-edged sword because you know, from a creative standpoint, I, I agree with you. Spectacularly successful, it was fantastic. But also, it, it can the way uh, it transpired was it, it. It also became kind of daunting for some readers who wanted to jump in. Right. Right. 
right? You know, I mean, it's like a serial television show. You know, there's some television shows where you can pick up in any season and just watch an episode and be fine. And there are other TV shows where you pick it up and you have no idea what's going on. And uh, so, you know, there's a trade-off. Uh, in, in doing a continuing series like that. So, you know, we're striving, though, to tell entire stories. And this has always been the case. You, you want to be able to, you don't want a reader, it's okay to leave them hanging, to leave them wanting more, but it, it's not okay to tell a story and not have a resolution to it. You know, you can leave some threads unresolved, but the basic plot of a novel you want to have resolved. In it. You want the reading experience of one book to be satisfying in and of itself. But it's certainly okay to seed other plot points, you know, for future storytelling in as well. And, you know, I'm going to go back to what I've been saying all interview, which is, as a reader, I am anxious to see the books continue, see, see, see Deep Space Nine continue. And, boy, I sure would love the Ascendance storyline <laughs> to get wrapped up. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Well, I, I do want to move us to your brand new book, uh, Allegiance and Exile, because uh, this is a great book. Um, it's in the TOS era. Um, you set this one in the fourth year of the first five-year mission. Um, the and fifth it, year, really. Yeah, exactly. The fifth year, really. Yeah. 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 Um, and it really gives uh, two different characters a chance to shine uh, and kind of really connect them to where they're going to go next. You know, uh, Kirk and Sulu. Um, what made you choose that time period and, and, and those two characters to kind of spotlight? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I was asked to write a, an original series novel, um, sort of, almost a, sort of at the last second. It was kind of a surprise, and I was like, I love the original series, so that's not a problem, and I, I love all the characters, but especially Kirk. And But I thought, I, I, what am I going to do? What do I want to talk about? What do I, what I, what I want to see? What, what don't I know about Kirk? And I, I'm not sure what there is that I don't know about Kirk, not just because, you know, I've seen these episodes so many times, but how many books have been published, original series books have been published since then. Um, but, but to me, that, because we didn't see it in the series, that uh, last season, um, last year of the mission, would be interesting. And I know there have been books that, that sort of followed the interregnum between the end of the five-year mission and Star Trek The Motion Picture, that two, two-and-a-half-year period. And uh, I just wanted to, I wanted to try and just explore, you know, Kirk, Kirk uh, and, you know, he, it's not like he wasn't melancholy at some times through, through the show. And he was always contemplative. I and mean, people talk about Kirk as the, the man of action and certainly had his share of fist fights and phaser fights and all of that. But he was always very contemplative, too. And it, it seemed to me that he was always wounded by his crew being hurt. And he wore that responsibility very heavily. Mm. So I just wanted to explore that. And Allegiance in Exile is kind of a, a different sort of a novel for me because it, it, it doesn't have a gr I like to write very complex stories. And Allegiance in Exile is a sort of a simpler story. And it really is uh, trying to be a character study of Kirk and Sulu. And at first, I just sort of set out for, for to explore Kirk a little bit. And Sulu just sort of happened, as we've used this word a few times, organically. Just as I was writing the outline, this sort of just appeared to me. And, uh, and um, I, you know, we haven't seen a lot of Sulu. Um, I mean, we didn't in the original series. So, I, you know, I thought it would be an interesting character to explore. And 
I tried to, to explore him in a way, in a story that we really haven't seen before, which was, you know, dealing with difficulties in his, his romantic relationship, uh, a certain type of difficulty. Um, I don't think, I, I mean, I haven't read all, however many, 700 novels of Star Trek, but I don't think we've seen something like that. At least I haven't, certainly not on the shows. So I wanted to explore that a little bit. And it really, to me, leads into the novelization of Star Trek The Motion Picture and Star Trek The Motion Picture itself. But in the novelization, you have the character of, of Lori Chiana, who Kirk, who, who features in Allegiance and Exile, and who Kirk has, actually, according to the novel, Gene Roddenberry's novelization of Star Trek The Motion Picture is a one-year marriage with. Oh, wow. Between the end of the end of the five-year mission and the beginning of Star Trek, the motion picture. So um, I think it's a book that actually might serve readers who are really steeped in Star Trek lore better than people who are not, because it really does play against, I, I mean, I tried to make it play against what came later. So it's really, I, I tried to imagine the end of the, the five-year mission and and just really lead into what was going to happen in, in, in the, the couple of years that followed before Kirk got back on the Enterprise. So that was my motivation for the story. I thought that that was really interesting because um, you do have Kirk kind of uh, in that beginning of the melancholy that will happen in the motion picture where he is not happy being an admiral. Um, and he begins to worry about this beforehand. And I thought that that was excellent to see the genesis of the man you'll see in the motion picture. And it explains it really well. I mean, you know, we know that Kirk's best destiny is starship captain. And as Spock said, anything else is, is a waste of material. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a man I knows really, the dialogue. yes, uh, I really appreciated that uh, you showed me how Kirk could get to that point. Cause you know, in the motion picture, it seems very strange um, to go from turnabout intruder to uh, you know, the motion picture. And you're like, well, I, that's not the Kirk that I know. Well, and, you know, there's like a four and a half year gap between those right. two events. So exactly. you're left to imagine, but you know, Kirk was always uh, one for introspection though, certainly in the first season, especially, but even in the second season, not as much in the third, but you know, one of my favorite scenes in the original series is in Balance of Terror, when he's deciding, you know, whether to violate the neutral zone, uh, uh, the Romulan neutral zone, in, in his pursuit of the, the Romulan ship that destroyed the, the uh, outposts. And, you know, he's worried about starting a war. He's worried about not stopping the ship and then allowing uh, a war to start by inaction. And, uh, you know, he has a scene, there's a scene with Kirk and McCoy in Kirk's quarters. And, uh, and Kirk talks about it very quietly and very, uh, in, a, in, a, in a way of, of self-examination, he, he, he says, you know, I look at all those people on the bridge looking at me, waiting for me to make the, the, the decision on what to do, and, you know, what if I'm wrong? So it was not like Kirk was not somebody who was introspective. He was. And so I tried to weave that in. And, and tried to, to bridge that gap between the, the end of the series and the, the, the motion picture. And also, um, 
you know, I have Kirk actually sort of trying to talk himself into what might happen. Right. You know? and, and, which I think is what people do sometimes. This might happen or that might happen, but you know what? Whichever thing happens, I, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to this is I'm going to make it the right choice. Whatever happens to me, you know. And it's a, it's a real human thing to do, I think. And it's really, I think motivations are really, really important for characters, uh, to, to keep characters true to themselves, and, and, but to also have them be very human. You know, even our heroes should be human. Even our heroes should have failings. It's right. sort of uninteresting. It's like having a supervillain um, who's just evil. Well, that's kind of boring. I mean, let's, you know, show me why you're doing this. Show me that you don't think you're evil. Show me that you're doing the th this for a good reason. Even though when I look at it, I think it's evil. I want to know that you don't think you're evil. I want you to be the hero of your own story, even if you're a villain. That's more interesting. And it's more interesting to have heroes who have failings. It's also more realistic. Yeah. So like John Harrison in the new film and Detonating Starfleet thinking. and all it stands for, uh, yeah. he seems to definitely have an opinion that he's doing the right thing. That's what they've suggested. You should absolutely, I think... Villains should always be that way, unless they're just, you know, insane. And every now and then you need an insane villain, I suppose. But um, the more interesting villains are the ones with, with good motivation, even if you think it's the wrong motivation, even if it is the wrong motivation, if it's an immoral motivation, it, it should be realistic and it should be driving them, you know. And it's like, you know, I wrote a, a Harriman novel, John, you know, the, an Enterprise B novel, and we got to see only a little bit of Harriman in Star Trek Generations, and he seemed a little inept. And the question is, how does somebody like this become the captain of a starship? Well, you know, I tried to really paint a picture of how this could happen and why this could happen and who this man really was. And, you know, you, you always want to try and flesh out these characters and make them realistic. It makes for better reading. It makes for better viewing if you're talking about movies or TV series. And I also, just for my own selfish writerly needs, I also made sure that I left enough time here and there in Allegiance and Exile so that it fit in nicely with Crucible, my Crucible trilogy, which was the other original oh, series yes. yeah. set of books that I wrote. I left a little... Because in that series, I, in the Crucible series I had, I dealt with the last mission of... The, the last mission that the Enterprise had in the five-year mission under Kirk. And so I left, in Allegiance and Exile, I specifically left time for that to happen. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I didn't want to contradict myself. <laughs> well, um, you do, and we talked about it a little bit, but I just wanted to ask you, you know, you tackle those questions of command and the burden that it is um, and the kind of the juxtaposition of where Sulu is and where Kirk is as a character. And, um, what do you think, uh, you know, you talked a little bit about Kirk, but what do you think that is about him that makes him so good as a captain? I mean, because some of the things that he talks to Sulu about, you know, he has thought deeply about these issues and he just has this strong conviction that he can make the right decision and he will do everything in his power to make the right decision. But he knows that sometimes he will fail and he just has to be able to live with that. Well, to me, that's one of the fascinating things about Kirk in the actual television series itself, is that Kirk didn't always make the right decision. Most of the time he did. But there were times where he, he made decisions that you could see on his face clearly weren't 
satisfying to him that that he thought, geez, could, could I have done this better? And, and one, the very first episode that ever aired, um, not the first one produced, was the Man Trap with the, the salt vampire or whatever. And at the end of that episode, you know, this is the last creature of its kind, and it's killing Enterprise crewmen. And so, you know, Kirk wants to kill this thing. Um, but they talk they talk about the buffalo too, and and how it was exterminated on Earth. Uh, and at the end of that episode, after the creature is killed, Kirk is melancholy and, and thinking. And he says, I think McCoy, either Spock or McCoy, I think McCoy asked him what he's thinking about. He's just thinking about the buffalo. And it's clear that you know he wished that there had been a better resolution to this. I mean, right. There couldn't have been, but he wishes that there was. You know, in in uh, Errand of Mercy, he's he's uh, arguing with the Organians that the Klingons and the Federation should be allowed to go to war. And then all of a sudden gets pretty sheepish when he realizes that he's arguing that they should be allowed to fight and kill millions of people. You know, Kirk, in, in a private little war, he, 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 he talks about he wants Scotty to manufacture flintlocks for villagers down on a planet to to maintain a balance of power with the city people. And, and, and uh, you know, he, then he says, you know, instead of flintlocks, he says, you know, serpents for the Garden of Eden. So clearly huh. there are decisions that he makes in the show that the character himself is not completely satisfied with, not completely sure that they're the right decisions. That, to me, is one of the things that makes Kirk a compelling character, that he's not superhuman. He's just human, but he's very introspective. He's, he feels things a great deal. I think that's very important that you know, he doesn't take for granted the loss of his, of his crewmen, uh, especially in that first season. When the show first started, if you watch those early episodes, any time a red shirt ended up you know, getting thrown off a cliff by Ruck, uh, you know, Kirk was, you know, he, he took some time, and you could see it on his face. It just ripped him apart. These are the things that are important to any sort of a leader, that he's trying to do the right thing. He thinks about the things not only that he's going to do, but that he has done. He's always examining his actions, both before and after the fact, and he cares deeply about the people that he's leading. I think it's what Gene Roddenberry was really after with Kirk. There's also this element of loneliness to command. You know, this terrible burden you have on your shoulders of, in Kirk's case, being responsible for the lives of 430 people in a dangerous environment. And that that, that contributes to uh, an air of loneliness, to an actual sort of lonely life. And, you know, in Naked Time, Kirk talks about, you know, he just wants some time off, no braid in his shoulder, you know, he wants a beach to walk on, those kinds of things. I try to be true to that. I tried to be true to the Kirk that we saw in the series. And those are all the things to me that make him a great character and a great leader. We got to see um, some familiar aliens for the first time in this book, um, which I thought was uh, awesome. The fact that Kirk is the first one to meet a Bajoran. Um why did you choose the Bajorans and the Ascendants as the MacGuffin in this book? Well, you know, um, I actually chose the Ascendants first. And um, I actually have a regret 
in, the, in, in about Allegiance and Exile, which is that I, I, that I said that they were the Ascendants. I had some dialogue. I don't feel like that dialogue rings precisely true now. I wish I had just left them nameless, because you should be able to recognize them if you've been reading the books. But yeah, it's the time it seemed important to put their name out there. Um, and then from that, it just sort of fell naturally that, oh, this should be the Bajorans. And, and I thought, wait a minute, do we know when we first encountered the Bajorans? Is there any story out there, in the sh any, any throwaway line in the series uh, about when first contact was made or how or in any of the books? So I did a lot of research on that to make sure that that was the case, uh, that wasn't the case, so that I could do it. And it was just, it just it was fun to do. I think it was you know a nice piece of Star Trek history to to fill out, and it also kept the ascendants. Um, even though we're in the past now, it still kept them front and center in a way, because I'm still hopeful that at some point we will see the ascendant story. We've hinted at what's happened, but we don't know exactly what happened and. I would love to read that story. I would also love to write it, but certainly I would love to read it. Yeah, I was really glad that you inserted them because I felt like, like you just said, you know, it puts that in our minds again, um, and it gives the readership again, I think, a new hunger for, okay, can we please know what happened here um, in the Deep Space Nine storyline that you had set up so beautifully, and we were just waiting for the payoff. Well, actually, I didn't set it up. I Marco and... and uh... Um, you know the the writers pre prior to right, me set exactly. it up, and they said set it up beautifully. Um, yeah, so much so that I want to freaking read it. Yeah, exactly. So if Pocket is listening, we want this story. Um, we will make sure people buy it. Um, and so David is willing to write it. So please let him <laughs> I do bet that. I'm not the only one. <laughs> you know, I, I really did face a dilemma with. Rough Beasts of Empire and the four-year gap. It was, I mean, I could have just ignored it. I could have just not said a word about it. And I didn't say much, but it seemed to me that ignoring it would not have served anybody well, wouldn't have served storytellers well, wouldn't have served readers well. I don't think it would have been satisfying in any way. And I think giving it a, 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 a couple of pages or even a chapter or two just might not have, wasn't, would not have satisfied people. You know, which is why I chose the sort of middle ground, which is to hint at some of the things that happened, to to say that in fact it, this there was a resolution to this. We just don't know what it was, and I tried to make it not obvious because, after all, Raik is now on Bajor. So wait a right. minute, what the heck happened? <laughs> well, we've talked about a lot. Um, you have an epic new series coming out with um, some of Trek's best authors. Um, your the five book series. Uh, yours is Revelations and Dust. It's going to be the kickoff for the fall, um, which also comes out in the fall, as we said. Any tidbits, any scoops we can get from you about uh, you know your your newest entry and that will be featuring the Deep Space Nine cast. Well, you know, I'd love to read the first line of the story to you, but it's a spoiler, so I can't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if I read the first line, then it would it would spoil at least two or three different things, so I, I can't. But um, uh, we will we will see the new Deep Space Nine, which is you know now a Starfleet facility, not an actual Corps of Engineer built 
Miles O'Brien and Nog designed station. It's a little bit different than other star bases, we, Federation Starfleet star bases that we've seen. Um, state of the art should be fun. I'm looking forward to spending some time. Well, I've already spent some time there. I'm hopeful <laughs> of spending more time there in the future. Um, see if I kind of hints can I give? I, I, I don't know. You know, it's going to be an interesting series. Um, I, I wonder how people are speculating about what, I mean, something called the fall kind of implies that something is going to, I don't know, fall. <laughs> and I, I suspect that some people are worrying that it's the Federation. Some people are thinking it might be the Typhon Pact. Um, I know that it, I know what's falling, and um, I think it's an interesting storyline. I think people will be satisfied with it. I, I couldn't be in better company than the writers that are following me. I, I mean, Una's a terrific writer, and, and Dave Mack, and James Swallow, Dayton Ward, they're all great writers. And I actually just read Dayton's outline, and uh, wow, just great stuff. Just, just from his outline, I was excited as a reader. Yeah, I I can't wait. I think it, you know, I I I I hope that it will. Obviously, I hope the entire series will satisfy everybody. I certainly hope my book will satisfy readers. It is, uh, it's, it does introduce the new Deep Space Nine, and it does, in some regard, try and pay respects to the 20th anniversary of Deep Space Nine's premiere. So I hope that will satisfy readers as well. And um, uh, yeah, I don't I don't know what I can say. I'm I'm still I, I just I turned in uh, I've turned in the first draft. I'm waiting for the copy edits, and I'm rereading it right now myself just to to make sure that everything hangs together. Excellent. Do you want to do it BSG style and read the final line of the book to us, and then we'll wonder you know where it's going. Wow, I could I, if I read the final line of the book to you. That's an even bigger spoiler than the first <laughs> one. Oh man! Yeah, I mean, uh, I I actually, you know, it was only within the last month or so that I wrote the last line, and I didn't know what the last line was going to be until sh- shortly before that. But when I figured out what it was going to be, I got really excited, and um, I love the last line of this book. It's short, but it's good. Good. Um, well, you know, you said it, the new station is going to be state of the art. I'm just hoping that everything's there by Tuesday when they need it. Um, <laughs> cause we know yeah. how Starfleet kind of gets behind on things. Uh, you know, well, and there's, you know, it's been a while now, but there is, you know, 2381 was the early 2381 was the Borg invasion. So, um, we, you know, Starfleet has been recovering for a long, for a while now. And that's part of the reason that they've allied with the Ferengi and the, and the Cardassians as well is because they need materiel. You know, they need ships. They need more ships. They, you know, there's only so, so fast you can build a starship and there's only so fast you can graduate new Starfleet classes. So it's been a hard four years for the Federation, for Starfleet in particular since then. But, um, uh, yeah, this we've seen a ship that doesn't get things till next Tuesday. Um, we'll do something <laughs> different with the new Deep Space Nine. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, the last thing that we always like to do for the authors, 
uh, is give them a chance to tell us about what's coming up next for them, plug anything that they want of theirs. This is your spot um, to just tell us what you're doing and where we can follow you and where, you know, the listeners can kind of get in touch with you. Um, so, yeah, let's let us know. I have a Facebook page that uh, I interact with readers on, and that's uh, D-R-G-I-I-I, facebook.com slash D-R-G-I-I-I. And you can follow me on Twitter, at, which I just joined uh, last month. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at David R. George III. Um, and uh, I, my projects, well, I, I have uh, I've just, I'm waiting for a contract for my next Star Trek novel, which should be here in the next couple of weeks. I know which series I'm doing. I know what, what I'm doing, but I can't really talk about it right now. I'm excited about it, though. And um, uh, I actually have a couple other irons in the fire, but I'm not much of a salesman for myself. There's nothing really I can talk about right now. I, I can only say that I do have another Star Trek novel that will be coming out in 2014. Excellent. Um, right now I'm just excited about, about Allegiance and Exile, which just came out, and Revelation and Dust, which will be out in September, and then the following books by the other authors, which I'm looking forward to reading myself. Great. Well, David, I really want to thank you so much for the time that you've given us. I mean, we have some of your works that we didn't get to cover here, but you've thankfully said that you would answer some questions in written form, so those will come out. So thank you so much for that because you've written some amazing books, the Crucible series, which we didn't get to talk about here. And so, you know, if if people are fans of, say, the original series, Allegiance and Exile is fantastic. If you haven't read the Crucible series, I think that that's definitely one of the highlights of, of the last 10 years in, in Trek Lit. Um, and so, yes, I, I can't recommend personally your books more because I have enjoyed every one that I've read. Well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate that. I certainly uh, feel privileged to be able to write these, and um, I'm glad that uh, I, I love happy readers. <laughs> so, and thank you for, uh, for, for inviting me. Uh, to chat with you. I appreciate it, Matt and Chris. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, and, and uh, I will answer those questions on Crucible, so you'll have those for the website as well. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, David. Well, we really appreciate your time, David. It's been fantastic. Thanks, guys. Well, Matthew, that was a really fascinating interview there with David, and I'm glad that I could join you this time, because I like to hear firsthand what the authors have to say, and all the Deep Space Nine talk, of course, was, for me, brilliant. Yeah, I'm so excited that uh, David got a chance to come on and talk with us. Um, you know, he's really has written some of my uh, favorite Star Trek books, especially recently uh, with uh, Plagues of Night, Raise the Dawn, um, really focusing on Deep Space Nine again. I was very excited that that happens. All right. Well, Matthew, let's tell everyone where to contact us if they'd like to share their thoughts on any of David's work or on the comics that we talked about at the beginning of the show in news. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Just choose to send a message to a show and choose Literary Treks, and that will come to Matthew and me. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can find us over on our new forums at trek.fm slash forums where there's a section devoted entirely to literary treks, and you can find us on Twitter under username trekfm. Matthew, what if people want to find you personally? Well, if you do want to find me, of course, doing the book reviews, just reviewed David's newest book. It's on the website there. Um, as well as we do the show 
The Orb, which we talk all Deep Space Nine all the time, you and I, Chris. So if you did like and enjoy the talk that we had about Deep Space Nine, join us there. Um, as well as you can find me on Twitter, uh, MattRushing02. Uh, I do try to keep it lively and fun, uh, just tweeting about all sorts of things. Uh, so if you follow me, let me know, and we'll have a good conversation, hopefully. You know, I'm just wondering, are you a Vorta by any chance? Is, is Matt Rushing 3 going to suddenly appear in my timeline one day? How did you know? You've blown my cover, Chris. <laughs> ah, Matt. I've been trying uh, to figure Matt it out. Rushing I've been zero... trying to figure out what this O2 means. Yeah. Matt Rushing <laughs> zero 01 was so now lame. Matt Rushing zero 02 is much better. Yeah. Uh, our illustrious Matt Rushing zero 03, I think, will be fantastic. So we'll see. where can we find you chris Uh, if you want to find me i'm on twitter my username is c brian jones that's brian with a y and you can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that username and you can find me besides the orb you can also find me every week on the ready room with greg harbin where we do star trek news and uh, go through all five of the live action series as well as the movies and a few special topics here and there uh, with a whole panel to discuss those so join us over there we do want to say a special thanks to all of you who have uh, reviewed us on itunes uh given us a review there star review or uh also given us a written review thank you for that if you haven't we uh would love uh, that you would do that for us it does help people find the show a few of our shows have made it in the new and noteworthy section and that just helps people see the show find the show uh, listen to it and definitely contact us let us know the things that you're thinking about the show especially on the forums it's very important to us and we we love getting to hear from from you all who listen um and the things that you might want to hear about too that's that's also uh, what we're there for and we want to say to all the listeners live long and read on you call that light reading to each his own number one